Ah, right, that's good. Well, welcome here tonight, and uh, I hope you're going to enjoy it. What we're going to be trying to do in Sunday evenings when I'm with you over this year is look at some of the hard questions that Christians have to face, hopefully in a way that will be useful to Christians, but also useful to non-Christians who are thinking through some of these things. We'll try to keep it as, as broad as possible. So what we're going to do is do two weeks on each question because we need to give these things serious, serious thought. The first week is going to be like tonight, a bit more of a presentation of some of the issues, quick run around the territory. And the second week, we'll be looking more at what the scriptures have to say about it. Because if you're a Christian, you're trying to answer these, these questions, this is your secret weapon. <laughs> the word of, of God has got its own power. It carries its own conviction. God promises that his word will not return to him void. And so very often, you know, Christians think, oh, if I, if, if I pull out my Bible and show them a verse, they'll think I'm a Bible basher. But actually, most people in my experience are quite fascinated because nobody's ever really explained, explained the Bible to them before. And to have the chance to look at it with somebody who understands a bit of it is very, very um, uh, in interesting. And so if you know a few passages that you can explain, then that's helpful. I also think that it's, it's impossible, isn't it, when you go into a conversation where somebody suddenly asks you a question and you have to come up with a uh, 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 an answer on the spot, it's impossible just to marshal all of the arguments and ideas and images and, and illustrations you've ever heard. You need one or two things that you can hang on to. And so I have this thesis that what you need are three things. Three is the maximum number that most of us can hold in our minds. If you go shopping at Tesco's or whatever and you've got an idea in the back of your mind, uh, of five or six things you need to get before you come home, you will probably remember three of them. It's a struggle for the others. And so I think remembering three things on any one subject is helpful. So if you get three good arguments that you can use in a conversation with somebody else, you, you will come across um, uh, with a lot more confidence and, uh, uh, and a lot more um, uh, of a reputation for being thoughtful than you would otherwise. You won't be scrambling around and thinking, oh, what was that sermon I heard? What point did the man make? You'll have something there you can say. And in my experience too, you probably won't ever reach number three. <laughs> because normally, oh. um, arguments one and two are understood, then that will launch a conversation that'll go deeply into something else and uh, you'll be away. But uh, it's important to have these answers. Now, tonight we are going to be answering a big one because it's, it's a current one. If there is one thing that Christians have always believed in, it's the love of God. Sometimes people try to say, oh, well, you know, there are two gods in the Bible. Jesus talked about a God who was lovely and warm and cuddly and loved everybody and so on. But in the Old Testament, he was the, uh, uh, the vicious, jealous God of the Israelites who threw down thunderbolts and killed everybody and did all sorts of stuff. That is just not true. And if you read the Bible all the way through, you'll see the love of God is one of the key things it mentions. Let's just start, we're not going to be reading lots of scripture tonight, but one or two we will. Let's just start with a few verses from 1,000 years before Jesus came along. This is Psalm 34, and uh, it, it, it makes the same basic claim. It was still being made 1,000 years after that, and is still being made now 2,000 years after that. And David says this, uh, Psalm 34, uh, 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 and, and verse 1, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. 
My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Why? Well, he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Come and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for you, those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good things, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. To cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, And saves those who are crushed in spirit. We could read the whole thing. But that's enough to give you the idea. Of God is good. God loves people. God intervenes and helps people when they are in need. But over the last year, we've seen an immense amount of misery, haven't we, in Ukraine. And as both sides gear up for a spring offensive, we're bracing ourselves for even more stories of heartbreak and tragedy. We're living in a world which there are problems. It's not just over the last year. Over the last month, we've seen the earthquakes in Turkey and in Syria. Over 50,000 people killed. Whole families wiped out, or just one tiny baby left behind. I read a horrendous story this morning about a man's body that was dug out of the the, the rubble in an apartment block in Syria. And he'd bent himself double and uh, kept his small son uh, under so that when the masonry fell on him, he'd die, but his son wouldn't. His son was still alive when they pulled him out. But a couple of hours later, he had died in hospital too. And just over the last 24 hours, we've seen the capsizing of a, a boat of refugees trying to get from Turkey to, 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 to Europe and enormous loss of life once again. And when you look at this going on, you can understand why people who do not necessarily buy into the idea that God is good, saying, well, if there is a God, why is the world so full of suffering? Now, that question's always been asked in some ways, but it became a really big question in the Western world in the year 1755. That was when there was an earthquake, much like the ones we've seen in in Syria and in Turkey. And uh, this is what happened. Any chance we can turn it up a little bit? Sorry. Is that loudest? Okay. I'll talk over it because we're not going to hear this anyhow, really. Uh, It's a Sunday morning. Most people are in church in Lisbon, the capital of of, of Portugal. And uh, suddenly, as you can see, things start happening that hadn't happened in many, many years. It's over a century since there was last an earthquake there. Lisbon is one of the great cities of Europe. And what has happened is that the tectonic plates have shifted a little bit. And suddenly, everything starts coming down. Most people are in church because it's a Sunday morning. But that doesn't save them. Suddenly, amazingly, the church birds start ringing all over the city without anybody pulling the ropes. They're just 
shaking slightly, and nobody knows what's going on. And then all of a sudden, as they look up and they wonder what is going on, disaster happens. And the roof starts caving, and uh, suddenly everybody's panicking and running for the exits. But in that colossal earthquake, something like 60,000 people, more than in Turkey and Syria today, die in one day. And I think we'll stop it there. And uh, what's happening is, is, is that one of the great capitals of Europe has suddenly wiped out, or, or, or a large part of its population is, just in a stroke. While most of them are in church worshipping God. And people like this guy came along and said, there you are, you see. That proves there is no plan or purpose in the universe. It proves there is not a God who loves us who's in charge of him. Why Lisbon? Okay, Lisbon was a place which had uh, slaves in other parts of the world. Brazil, at that point, was still a, a colony of Portugal's. And there were, were all sorts of evil things done in, in Lisbon, uh, as there were in most uh, large cities. But, uh, this man, Voltaire, uh, said, listen, are we really saying that Lisbon was worse than Paris or Barcelona or any of the other European capitals? Why would God's vengeance suddenly come on this place? where there are lots of churches and lots of people trying to worship God. Clearly, this is not the case. And Voltaire was somebody who believed very strongly that Christianity was one of the worst ideas that the Western world has ever come up with. He wrote to a king uh, with whom he was in correspondence, it's assuredly the most ridiculous, the most absurd, and the most bloody religion which has ever infected this world. And he says, your majesty would do the human race an eternal service by extirpating this infamous superstition. Christianity is just a superstition. The whole idea that God is love is something we just tell ourselves. It's a fairy story that makes us feel more at home in a universe which ultimately is uncaring, random, haphazard, and doesn't have any interest in us whatsoever. And uh, from this, this uh, earthquake in Lisbon spread the ideas of a thing called the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment was a time in European history when people started thinking, well, Let's forget the whole idea of a God who reveals himself to us and instead base everything on human reason. What we can see, what we can observe around us, that's sure, that's solid. But an invisible God who seems to do contradictory things, we cannot believe in that. And uh, the basic uh, argument was this. We are living in a world of evil and sorrow. You see sorrow all over the place. There are disasters all the time. Ukraine is nothing new. Turkey and Syria are nothing new. It happens all the time. And so if there is a God in the universe, one of two things has got to be true, but they can't both be true at the same time. He can't be both good and powerful. Because if God is good and he doesn't like what's going on, then he must be powerless. He doesn't have the ability to do anything about it. And there have been people who have, have uh, in their own day, written best-selling books about the fact that God hates what's going on, but he can't really help. Uh, there was a, the American rabbi, Harold Kushner, wrote a book when, about, called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And his basic conclusion at the end of the book was, well, God would love to help, but he can't. He's powerless. On the other hand, if God is powerful, he's evil. <laughs> he can't be a good God. Otherwise, he'd never let this kind of stuff go on. And so said Voltaire and other thinkers like him, you can't have it both ways. You can't have a God who is in charge, who is powerful, who does things in the universe, and at the same time, a God who is good. And 
The problem with this, of course, is that it relies on assumptions, two big assumptions, one on either side of that argument. On the first side, you're assuming that God can do absolutely anything. But is that actually true? It's, a, it's an argument that sometimes uh, non-Christians try to trap Christians with. Your God can do anything, can't he? Yes, God is all-powerful. Ah, so why doesn't he do something like Ukraine? Uh, 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 mm, ah, ah. But can God do anything? I don't think he can. God can do most things, but he can only do, first of all, what's consistent with who he is. God is a God of, of rationality and order. The Bible says that God is not the author of confusion. He can't make it simultaneously Wednesday morning and Saturday evening because that's logically contradictory. He can't make black white. And he operates within consistent, orderly, faithful rules. That's the only reason that science happens. And so God cannot do what is totally ridiculous. And the question is often asked, so if your God can do anything, can he create a stone that's too heavy for him to lift? Oh, oh dear, my brain hurts. But of course, when you think about it, the question's ridiculous, isn't it? Because God cannot do what is logically ridiculous. The second thing that God can't do is what he's entrusted to other agents. If he's given freedom to other beings in creation to do certain things, then he cannot just take that freedom away. I mean, if I give you my wallet and say, there you are, you can spend all my money on whatever you like. All right, great. I'll go down to the sweet shop and I'll have ice cream. I'll just spend it all on ice cream. Oh, no, no, not ice cream. No, 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 I didn't mean that. You can spend it all on ice cream if you want. I've given you the power to do so. I've said you can spend it on what you like. And so even if I disagree about the way you're going to do it, you can do it. Now, if we're living in a universe in which we're not robots or puppets who are directed by a God who is a puppet master, if we really do have freedom, then it's possible for us to do some things that are not the way that God would want it to be. And that's what leads on to the other assumption that's being made there. First assumption, God can do anything. No, he can't. He can do many things. But when he's given us freedom to do certain things, we are able to do things that would not be his perfect will for his creation. Second thing, though, if God's powerful, he's evil, that's buying on an assumption too. And that's assuming, and this is the big one, isn't it? That this is the world that God actually created. Is this the way he wanted it? Is this the way he planned it to be? Is this the kind of world um, that uh, he had in mind when he made it in the first place? And the answer, of course, is well, no, not. Uh, you can make it sound, I had mud slides in here, and uh, they did not work out, on, and I had to leave and leave down to do this thing anyway. So I'm sorry, you're not going to see this guy's face. But in the 19th century, there was a, a great skeptic called Colonel Robert Ingersoll. And he was well known in America for his, his hatred of Christians and Christianity. And uh, he was a bit of an, a, an extremist, quite honestly. For instance, he'd turn up at Christian open-air meetings and uh, read out in a loud voice what he considered to be scandalous passages from the scriptures. And, uh, of course, this is a Victorian age where you don't talk about people, well, doing various things. And so, uh, so he'd, uh, he'd managed to break up the meetings just by, by, by reading out. This is the holy word of God. Listen to this, people. But he did have some good arguments as well. And he wrote some books against Christianity. And one of the, the, the things he said was, listen, has God really created a good world? He said this. What would we think of a father who would give a farm to his children and before giving possession should plant upon it thousands of deadly shrubs and vines? 
She'd stock it with ferocious beasts and poisonous reptiles. She'd take pains to put a few swamps in the neighborhood to breed malaria. She'd so arrange matters that the ground would occasionally open and swallow a few of his darlings. And besides all this, she'd establish a few volcanoes in the immediate vicinity that might at any moment overwhelm his children with rivers of fire. Mm. Well, suppose that this father neglected to tell his children which of the plants were deadly. That the reptiles were poisonous. Failed to say anything about the earthquakes and kept the volcano business a profound secret. Would we pronounce him angel or fiend? And that's a fair question. If this world represents the best God can do, if it's the way that God planned for things to be, is this the world that God created? Well, what do you see when you look at the world? I think that what you see is a mixture of good things and bad things. When you read Ingersoll's and the pictures that he paints, or Christopher Hitchens in his own day, you might think, oh, yeah, right, the world is a scene of misery. This is dreadful. What an awful place to have created. And yet, most people like living here. <laughs> People rarely commit suicide. They don't always want the end of things. As you would imagine they would if the world was as bad as, uh, as Ingersoll and Hitchens say it is. But no, people like living in this world in general because there's joy, there's freedom, there's happiness, there's hope. There are all kinds of things that make life worthwhile, especially in the sunshine. Eh? And so uh, you've got a mixture of good and bad here, haven't you? And when you look at the world and you try to work out what's going on, there are three possibilities you could come up with. The first thing is, you could say, well, this whole thing is just an accident. Um, have we got maximum volume on, on, on you here? Because, yeah, yeah. I, the, the next one will probably be a, a lot better, but uh, um, I think we, we are going to need to sound on this next clip if we can do it. I'll just, I'll just get out of it for a second and make sure that my volume is up as far as it can go. That's good. Yeah, it's not bad. Let's go back to this again. Oh, here we are. There we are. Um, I, I want to show you a clip, but I also want to make sure that it, it's. Uh, is that? No, we're not doing it. Anyway. There we are. All right. Okay. Well, that's a possibility. Okay. Uh, I haven't a clue actually. Uh, sorry. Down here. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. That's that's fine. What do you see when you look at the world? Good things, bad things. Three theories. First theory is it's all just an accident. Now, the first talk in, we did in this, this series was about God and science. And so, excuse me if you heard that one, uh, we tried to show that actually the way that science is going nowadays in the 21st century is showing more and more evidence unexpectedly of the divine in the universe. And more and more scientists are starting to say, it's not just random, it's not just accidental, there's got to be something going on. Sir Bernard Lovell, the great astronomer, said, is the universe the way it is because it was necessary for the emergence of humankind? That's interesting, isn't it? You have a world in which human life emerges and it doesn't seem to be an accident. Here's just a, a little clip, though, um, if we can make this thing happen, of uh, uh, a video which you'll find on YouTube, but Eric Metaxas, who's a, an apologist and a thinker, uh, talking about why the world seems less and less to be an accident. Okay, I will talk over my taxes. Don't worry about it. This is true. 
What Metaxas is saying basically is that back in the 1970s, when Time magazine was announcing that God is dead, was that uh, Carl Sagan, the, the, the scientist, was saying at the same time, there must be lots of planets out there in space that we haven't found yet where there is extraterrestrial life. And so the SETI projects, uh, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, um, started to look for it. And as, as Metaxas is saying now, the silence from the universe is deafening. We have found no other life anywhere. As Sagan was saying, there are two um, conditions for having life on another planet, just the two. But as our knowledge of the universe increased, it became clear there were far more factors necessary for life, let alone intelligent life. And the figure kept on going up. You won't get life unless you get this and this and this and this. And uh, now uh, uh, the number of planets that can support life is going down while the the, 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 the number of conditions is going up. And so it's less and less likely that there are going to be any extraterrestrials discovered. It's not impossible yet, but it's, it's looking less and less likely simply because, uh, this, I think this is no use, uh, simply because we've discovered to have life on a planet is a very difficult and complicated thing. He goes on in that little clip, you know, it's a, it's a five-minute clip, it's worth having a look at sometime, to talk about why we are in the perfect position as well, shielded by other planets in our solar system so that life can continue. We don't have meteorites banging into us all the time. And, and when you look at the way in which our planet has developed life, you can see that the same set of conditions is extremely rare anywhere else. It doesn't look as if the whole thing is accidental. Anyway, that's just the first theory. Second theory is, well, okay, there are good things and there are bad things in the universe. Therefore, there is a creator, but he's a sadist. <laughs> he's a bully. He, he wants us to suffer. And I think that if you try to uphold that theory, and not many people have, you have even more difficulty explaining away the existence of joy and happiness and fulfillment in a world that's run by a bad God <laughs> than you do explaining away the, the, the existence of evil in the world that was created by a good God. So that takes us to theory three. And theory three is God is good, but this is not what he wanted. This is not the way he planted it. Planned it. And the, the world is not in the state that he wanted it to be. Uh, God is good, but somehow this world has got out of control. So the next question you've got to ask then is, why is there evil then? And I think there are three basic things you can say about that. First thing is, the way the world works. Things happen in certain ways sometimes, and here I'm going to miss a video clip here, but uh, um, uh, I, I, we're not going to make it work anyway. Um, the, one, one of the problems is the way the world works. Things happen in our world by natural physical laws. God has made things to happen that way, and it's good that he has done. When you go to the door in the morning, you never find that gravity has reversed itself and you're off up into the stratosphere. You can rely on gravity keeping your feet on the floor. Um, you never see the sun rising in the west and going down in the east. Oh, well, that's the wrong way around today. It's never like that because the whole of our world depends on natural systems being reliable. You know, we couldn't even have science if it were not that you could repeat experiments and get the same result time after time after time. And so our understanding of the world around us depends on the fact that there are natural laws, which God is not going to change at random. He's not going to get up in the morning and say, oh, I think I'll make the sky purple in the morning. <laughs> because he doesn't do that kind of thing. 
So that means that sometimes he will not defend us from the results of our choices either. Every cigarette you smoke takes a minute off your life, they say. But if you have a packet of cigarettes and think, well, I'm going to smoke one anyway, God doesn't see you trying to strike the match. And, oh, no, we can't let this happen. But uh, the, the match doesn't light, or the packet of cigarettes away from you into the sky somewhere. God doesn't do that. If you, you decide in your misery to end it all and you throw yourself over the cliff, God doesn't turn the rocks at the bottom into marshmallows so that you just go boing and bounce back again. He doesn't do that. He allows us to live by the consequences of our choices. He gives us the freedom to make decisions in his world. Now, sometimes that means we can take wrong choices and inflict suffering on ourselves. It also means that we can inflict suffering on other people, innocent people who shouldn't be suffering in that way. And God has given us enough freedom that that, that happens. There's a lot of you could say about that, but let's leave that one there for the moment, the way the world works. The second thing is the way we are. God, uh, the Bible claims that when God created us, he created us right. And he made us to live right under a system of, of, of behavior which he'd planned out in advance, and which would have enriched and fulfilled human life all over the place. But we don't live that way. And we've created a world of immense suffering and sorrow. There's a great moment in, in the, the film, The Testament of Youth, when Vera Britton, who's volunteered to be a, a young nurse in the First World War, uh, is um, in her, her uh, hospital, field hospital in France, and a whole new bunch of people are brought in from the battlefield. And uh, you start to see just how massive this thing is, how much sorrow human beings are bringing to one another. As she goes around the corner of the hut, suddenly she sees the full uh, extent of everything that's being brought into being by the First World War and people fighting one another. And it's a, it's a memorable image. Here she goes, in the corner. And there they are, the new lads that have just been brought in over the roof here. Stretchers and bodies as far as you can see. Some of them badly injured, some of them not so badly, but still the, 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 an example of the damage that human beings do to one another. And the first thing you've got to think about when you talk about the world we live in, and why does God allow it, is the fact that a lot of the damage in the world is done by human beings. We do it to one another. And we make the wrong choices. We, uh, for reasons of power or greed or insecurity, oppress other people, and we end up with a world that's in a mess. Vera Britain went through the First World War and saw some horrific things, but it didn't destroy her faith. She was a kind of a Christian at the start of the First World War. At the end of the war, she was a much more convinced Christian than she had been to start with. Because she said, you know, if there is no God, if there is no reason in any of this, then uh, uh, life is not worth living. God is the only thing that's going to make this all worthwhile. And, you know, the Bible does face up to the evil of the world. Um, David Bentley Hart, talking about that uh, quotation I read out from uh, Ingersoll, uh, said this. David Bentley Hart is one of the leading uh, Christian thinkers in the world at the moment. He said this, It seems a curious delusion to imagine that Christianity has never at any point during the two millennia of its intellectual edition considered the problem of evil or confronted the reality of suffering and death or at any rate responded to these things with any subtlety. 
that Christians have down through the centuries simply failed to notice every single instance of flood, earthquake, or tempest, pestilence, famine, or fire, war, genocide, or slaughter. Or that every Christian who's been crippled or has contracted a terminal illness or has watched his, his wife die of cancer or has stood at the graveside of his child has somehow remained inexplicably insensible to the depths of his own pain and to the dark moral enigmas haunting every moment of his grief. And David Bentley Hart, does he think Christians have never thought about this stuff? Of course we have. We've wrestled with it down through the centuries. But the conclusion we've come to is that the way we are is responsible for an awful lot of the problem. The evil that human beings do to one another is a large part of the problem with the world. There's a third thing. The way it's all going to change. It's not going to be this way forever. There's a passage, I, I, I've read a bit this morning from the book of Ecclesiastes, and there's a passage in Ecclesiastes which talks about the way that the world is. And it's very honest. And it's a counterbalance, if you like, to Psalm 34, with which we started. Psalm 34 is saying, yes, God is good. Trust in him, and he'll never let you down. And on one level, that's true. But when you look at uh, the world, you see other things as well. And uh, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 8 says this, There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve, and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I saw, is meaningless. When I applied my mind to know wisdom, to observe man's labor on earth, his eyes not seeing sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. There are things in life that we do not understand, and there are things that hurt. He goes on to, 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 to say this as well. I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no man knows when the hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. What Christians would say is, yeah, living with God in your life, you can be the victim of that as well. Things will happen out of a clear blue sky that you're not expecting, which are awful, which are ruinous, which are disastrous. Sorrow is a part of every Christian's life at one point or another. However, through it all, you can know the presence of somebody who is working out his purpose through all of the mess and who one of these days is going to put everything right. <coughs> the Apostle Paul went through more trouble for being a Christian than most people will in our present day. I say most people because this afternoon I've been reading an article, a horrendous article about what's happening to Christians in North Korea, especially in the western part of North Korea, where back in 1907 there was a Christian revival and there are still something like 20,000 to 40,000 Christians, nobody knows how many, who are secretly worshipping God in the most oppressive country in the world. They're all being discovered and dragged away to prison camps and terrible things are happening to them. But that's another story. The Apostle Paul knew something of that. He knew what it was like uh, to be in jail for the sake of his faith. He knew what it was like to despair of life itself. And he wrote to the Romans in the letter that we had a look at in this church last year and said this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. What that means is that one of these days, Jesus is coming back, and those who are children of God will be affirmed 
will be recognized, will receive the recompense for everything they've seen uh, in this present life. And he goes on. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, that's God, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. What's this saying? Well, it's giving the deepest Christian answer to the problem of evil. And I've got to say, this is something you can't prove, but it's the claim the Bible makes. It says that when human beings turned their backs on God, hijacked this planet, went off in the wrong direction, they not only did things that wrecked their own lives, but they shattered the very mainspring of creation itself. So the world is working, but it's not working right. And so, although it's a world in which the scientific laws still function and the sun comes up in the morning and goes down in the evening and the, the crops still grow and, uh, and so on and so forth, well, most of the time they do, um, despite that, we're living in a shattered, broken world, which is a million miles from the way that it was ever intended to work. It's subjected to frustration. I remember thinking about this once when I was on a school mission in uh, Walsall in the, the Midlands. And uh, I was there in my car, which is a, an ancient Ford Italian in those days. Nice big car, but um, it had seen better days, let's just say. I got it for free from somebody that didn't want it anymore, and soon found out why they didn't want it anymore. And I was driving along the road in Walsall, uh, when all of a sudden I heard this horrendous sound, a bit like a, a, an amplified sewing machine making the most awful noise in the world, and I realized it was coming from me. It was my car. Didn't sound healthy. So I stopped it, started it again, same sound. I thought, oh, I can't deal with this. So I find out the REC, and they came out to help. And the man said, okay, fair enough, let's see what this car's doing. Just start the engine. I said, yeah, okay. Started the engine, sewing machine noise, and his face went absolutely pale. He said, switch it off, switch it off, switch it off. I said, yeah? He said, yes, your car is very sick. He said, it needs to go into the garage straight away. You're not going to have a car the rest of the week. <coughs> and uh, I said, okay. I noticed there's a Ford dealer just, uh, you know, half a mile down the road. Supposing I, I take it down there very gently, will that be okay? He said, no, 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 I'm going to get a low loader. He said, if, I guarantee that if you drive that car down there, you'll get there, but you won't ever have a car again. <laughs> so uh, the problem was it was working in a kind of a way, it was making an awful noise, it made everybody in the street turn around and look at it, but it was moving forward. It was working in a certain way, but it was hurting itself. He said, every time that engine turns over, it hurts itself a little bit more. And that's the picture that you get of the world that we're living in. It's working, but it's hurting itself. And one of these days, that's not going to happen anymore. The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And the Apostle Paul says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that's Christians, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. In this world, there will be sorrow. There'll be groaning, there'll be problems, but we know we're going somewhere better. There's a girl called Christina Grimmie, um, who was one of the most uh, influential and most uh, talented musicians, uh, very exciting talent in the early 2000s, all from 2010 to 2016 anyhow. 
She came to notice for two reasons. First of all, she was in a program called The Voice in America. And though she didn't win it, everybody said she should have won it. She was by far the best contestant. Also, she released a few videos on YouTube of her singing. And they were just absolutely amazing. I meant to download them all before her site disappeared and I never got round to it. But they're not there anymore because she was a rising talent. Selena Gomez took her under her wing and became the, the person who was pushing her forward. Justin Bieber was a close friend. Demi Lovato, lots of other people. She had lots of friends who really admired her and valued her artistic talent. Interesting thing about Christina Grimmie was she was a Christian and she was totally unashamed about it. But you know what happened? 2016, she was uh, at the end of a concert in Florida, 10 o'clock at night. She was just standing at the front of the stage signing autographs for fans. And one of those people that seemed to be so common in America now turned up, uh, walked in front of her, pulled out a shotgun and shot her dead on the spot. Age 19. Just before that, she'd released on YouTube a video of her favourite song. <laughs> and uh, let me just see if uh, we can play you a little bit of one verse of that song. This is Christina Grimmie. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no fear of man shall ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, which is what happened. Here in the power of Christ, I, I stand. And then she repeats those last two lines. Till he returns or calls me home. Oops, I stopped it. Never mind. <laughs> Here in the power of Christ, I stand. And that's, that's the hope for Christians. That's what people need to understand about our hope. We are not saying, oh, yes, God is good and everything is wonderful in the world. Nor are we saying, no, we're in a miserable world, but uh, one of these days we'll get out of it, we hope, we think. No, we have a living link with somebody now who gives us the strength to go on and the conviction and the hope that because everything we know about him is good, then one of these days we'll be in his presence and everything will be perfect. And in the meantime, no power of hell, no fear of man can ever pluck us from his hand. Two final thoughts, and I'm, I'm done, and, and John will come back. Uh, if you're thinking about the whole question of can there be a God of love in a, in a world like ours, the first thing you've got to ask yourself is why do we expect fairness and justice in the first place? Why is it you look at the newspaper and say, there should be a law, something should be done, and there's a burning feeling that injustice is wrong and what's going on in Ukraine must not be allowed to happen and somebody ought to do something. And one answer for that is that God has built into our hearts an expectation of something better. And uh, another verse in the book of Ecclesiastes says that God has set eternity in our hearts. We want something beyond what we experience right now. We want a world in which there is fairness, a world in which there is justice, a world in which truth prevails. We don't see it around us, but something inside us says, this is not the way it's supposed to be, and that's a sign that it's there. 
there is more somewhere there. Second question you could ask yourself is, how much of the picture do we just not see? Because we are standing in a very limited perspective trying to judge the work of a God who's in charge of the whole, whole situation. And you don't necessarily see everything that's going on, do you? This is, this is just a collection of doodles that um, you've probably seen before. Uh, you know what that, uh, that uh, top left one is up there? It's a Mexican flying an egg. You're looking down on you from above. Okay? You only see one perspective. And that, oh, what's going on here? B is a Mexican riding a bike. Uh, C is a Mexican playing a trumpet. And D is a giraffe going past Pindo because it's a Mexican's day off. And, um, you know, these are, these are just silly things. But y you can see how seeing just one perspective can completely give you the wrong idea of what's going on. Here's a Mexican on holiday in Egypt. Pyramids. Think pyramids. Okay. Here's a Mexican having a bath. Here's a Mexican kissing his girlfriend. And uh, here's a koala climbing up a tree because it's the uh, giraffe's day off. And when you look at stuff like that, it's, it's just a silly game, certainly it is. But at the same time, it's, it's challenging you to change your perspective and look at things from a different angle from you, you usually do. And when you just have a few bare lines to look at, you can see one thing but not everything. And we are not in command of the whole situation. We don't understand what God is doing. And that's the conclusion of those verses in Ecclesiastes, isn't it? When I saw everything that God has done, I couldn't comprehend it. No man can comprehend it. It doesn't make sense from our perspective. But you can know enough of a God who truly is there to be confident that he can make sense of it. So the conclusion of the whole thing, I think, is this. Yes, there could well be a God, even in this haphazard universe. And he could well be a being of incredible love, care, and generosity. But you'll never know until you reach out to him and invite him to be part of your life. John, if you're free to take over at this point, <laughs> I'll, I'll hand